We're going to begin in 2 Samuel 16 and take up our reading in verse uh, 5, please. Verse 5. This is the, the most traumatic, the most grievous period in the whole of David's life. And as we've seen that he was a role model and a mentor to so many people, here he is demoralized, his home is fragmented, his family are against him, and his people now are part of a conspiracy under Absalom. And at this particular period, he is passing through this region that was part of Saul, King Saul's family of the Benjamite tribe. And he experiences further humiliation. So, Second Samuel 16 and verse 5. As King David approached Baharim, a man from the same clan as Saul's family came out from there. His name was Shimei, son of Gera, and he cursed as he came out. He pelted David and all the king's officials with stones, though all the troops and the special guard were on David's right and left. As he cursed, Shimei said, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you scoundrel. The Lord had repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has handed the kingdom over to your son Absalom. You have come to ruin because you're a man of blood. Then Abishai, son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord, the king? Let me go over and cut off his head. But the king said, why do you and I, what do you and I have in common, you sons of Zeruiah, if he is cursing because the Lord said to him, Curse, David. Who can ask, why do you do this? David then said to Abishai and all his officials, My son, who is my own flesh, is trying to take my life. How much more than this Benjamite Leave him alone. Let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will see my distress and repay me with good for the cursing I am receiving today. So David and his men continued along the road while Shimei was going along the hillside opposite him, cursing as he went and throwing stones at him. And showering him with dirt, the king and all the people with him arrived at their destination exhausted. And there he refreshed himself. Meanwhile, Absalom and all the men of Israel came to Jerusalem. And Ahithophel was with them. Then Hushai, the archite, David's friend, went to Absalom and said to him, Long live the king, long live the king. Absalom asked Hushai, is this the love you show your friend? Why didn't you go with your friend? Hushai said to Absalom, no. 
the one chosen by the Lord, by these people, and by all the men of Israel, his will, his will be, and I will remain with him. Furthermore, whom should I serve? Should I not serve the Son, just I serve, served your Father? So I will serve you. Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give me your advice. What should I do? Ahithophel answered, Lie with your father's concubines, whom he left to take care of the palace. Then all Israel will hear that you have made yourself an offense to your father's nostrils, and the hands of everyone with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and he lay with his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now in those days, the advice of Ahithophel, in those days the advice Ahithophel gave was like that of one who inquires of God. That was how both David and Absalom regarded all Ahithophel's advice. So reads God's word. Now, I know that's a bit of a challenge to you and to me to try to um, draw out some things from this. It's part of our uh, overall series that we are pursuing. Uh, the heading is, like father, like Absalom. There's a play in words there, like father, like son. Now, there are some children here tonight, and uh, they will see that if you were to, if you've been to the cinema you have certain ratings. Or if you buy a DVD, and you would know that some are not uh, proper for children to see. This sermon has got a certificate X rating. So if you have to leave, you should leave now. Because it has violence, rape, incest, murder, intrigue, conspiracy, and much more. And it's coming from the household of King David, who has written most of the Psalms. That's quite a shock, isn't it? So before we consider this, the darkest period in the life of King David, uh, I want to do two things by way of um, introduction. The first thing I would like to do is to give a principle. And on this principle, I want us to hang the sermon. Okay? And then secondly, to give a poem that will illustrate and apply. And then we'll just look at some verses. First of all, um, the principle uh, we will find in um, the New Testament. And I'd like you to turn now to Galatians, please. Galatians chapter 6. And uh, this you will find in page 1172. 1172. Galatians chapter 6. Now this is the principle. And we're going to stay with this for a bit because it is very important for the purpose of the sermon. What uh, do you make um, of this now as, um, as I read it to you by way of... Um, and try to... Put it at the back of your mind as the sermon unfolds, okay? Galatians 6, verse 7. Do not be deceived. 
God cannot be mocked. A man, any person, man or woman, a man reaps what he sows. That's all I want to give just now. Just that verse 7 is a further comment on that. But that's the essence of it. Okay? Here's the principle. Do not let anyone, anyone tell you differently. We will reap what we sow. We will. I will remember, and I can think now, almost 25 years ago, talking to who was then a member of this church, moved away now, and his son was being rebellious, and, he, and I was asking him how things were going, and he said this. I never forgot it. Well, of course, he said, we must all, at some point, sow our wild oats. I looked him in the eyes, and I said, really? I've, over the last 10, 15 years, subsequent to that, just made my observation. Why should we think like that? For sure, if we do sow our wild oats, those we will reap. It is the law of God, the law of nature, we reap what we sow. It is the law of the Spirit, we reap what we sow. And I think that there has become a prevailing heresy, if we could call it that, it's a very strong word, among us as evangelical Christians. And it's this, um, that people would say, well, of course, nobody's perfect, we know that. So just for, confess your sins and everything will be okay. You dust yourself off and you start again. Well, yes and no. Forgiveness, for sure. But consequences, what about consequences? Grace, then, means in forgiveness, God gives you the strength or the grace to endure the consequence. He does not take it away. Let me illustrate this. I was uh, trying to think how best to do this. And um, I remember on the third occasion uh, in junior school that I had broken my arm, that I came home, and my parents never had a car. And Morriston Hospital, which I knew far too well as a boy, um, was six miles away, but it took three buses to get there. And it took most of the day then to have an x-ray and then... And I can well remember asking my mother, and she'd had a lot of experience at forgiving me, um, if she would just this once more. Um, and I think she did. But my mother's forgiveness of me there didn't heal my broken arm. So the whole of summer, I've got a plaster. I'm forgiven... But the consequences of what I did, I have to live with. Now that is very important when we think about how God forgave David. And the sermon is about horrendous consequences. So, grace means in forgiving you completely, God gives you the strength or the grace to endure the consequences of your sin. Or put it another way. 
grace to forgive my sin. Okay? And grace to endure the consequences of them. So therefore the heresy is a bit like this. Too many preachers like me have a sort of corrective theology. You wait until things go wrong and and you're good at counselling and you're good at this and you get alongside and you get people back on their feet and you move on. That in itself is good. But there is too little preventive theology. And this is one of the benefits. We are here tonight. I'm preaching. You're listening. And who knows, by the Spirit of God, what he's going to prevent in terms of calamities and difficulties in your life and mine. It's easy to say these things. uh, But nevertheless, think about it. Too much corrective theology. Too little preventive theology. Let's use another illustration. Some of you have children who are about, sorry, you can't say that, no, young people who are getting ready to drive. 17. Marvellous age. And suppose you're a parent, if you are a father, who's going to teach your son or your daughter to drive, if you dare. You've had experience of it, I'm sure. Are you going to do a corrective or a preventative approach? The corrective one would be to say, there you are, sit in the car, here is a very good insurance. When you have an accident, that's my phone number. And when that happens, let me know. Well, that's very kind. Or you would say, sitting in the car, this is the highway code. It applies to everybody, whether you've just started driving for a month or we've been driving for 40 years. Ignore that at your peril. At this point, it is very important that you take this seriously. You see the difference? We reap what we sow. There are consequences. Do you remember? Let's come then, come back to 2 Samuel. And last Sunday evening, just um, we were looking at this account of Second uh, Samuel 12 of Nathan, the preacher, drawing David into this emotive narrative, which, is, which we can't read now. And David is so angry, really is angry, and says the person who lives like this, does that, deserves to die. Of course, he's angry about other people's sins, not his own. He's got a blind spot. And Nathan says, you're the man. It's not anybody else, it's you. And he says, I have sinned. And Nathan says, your sin is forgiven. And then he says, but the sword will never leave your house. Sin is forgiven. Consequences have to be lived with. And the rest of this sermon is about that. Several times it says, and the sword will never leave your house. And these consequences were building up. There's no question about it. David was forgiven. But there's equally no question about it. 
He had to live with his consequences. And these consequences would break his heart and would damage the lives of many people. And you should ask yourself, therefore, what is the best, to be corrective or to be preventive? And you think of that in all sorts of ways. Well, that's the principle. And obviously, an awful lot more could, could be said about that. Um, now I want to give a, uh, read the poem. This is the second, and it fits into uh, where, where we're at. Uh, I don't know if you listen to Radio 2. I'm a Radio 4 man. Uh, but recently in Radio 2, they were having a discussion about um, this song by Harry Chapin, who is um, a country and western singer from the Deep South. And uh, it's called Cats in the Cradle. You might know this. If not, just listen it's not good poetry. Just listen to the message that it contains. My child arrived just the other day. He came into the world in the usual way. But there were planes to catch and bills to pay. He learned to walk while I was away. And he was talking, for I knew it as he grew. And he would say, I'm going to be like you, Dad. I'm going to be like you. And the cats in the cradle and the silver moon, little boy moon and man in the moon. When are you coming home, Dad? I don't know when, but we'll get together then. We'll have a good time then. My son turned ten just the other day. He said, thanks for the ball, Dad. Come on, let's play. Can you teach me to throw? I said, no, not today. I have a lot to do. He said, that's okay. And he walked away with a smile, never dimmed. It said, I'm going to be like him. Yes, I'm going to be like him. He came home from college just the other day. So much like a man, I just had to say, Son, I'm proud of you. Can we sit for a while? He shook his head and said with a smile, What I'd really like, Dad, is to borrow the car keys. See you later. Can I have them, please? I've long since retired. My son's moved away. I called him just the other day. He said, I'd like to see you if you don't mind. I said, I'd like to see you if you don't mind. He said, I'd love to, Dad, if I could find the time. You see, my new job's a hassle. And the kids have the flu. But it's sure nice talking to you, Dad. It's nice talking to you. And as I hung up the phone, it occurred to me he'd grown up just like me. My boy was just like me. And the cats in the cradle and the silver moon, little boy moon and the man in the moon. When are you coming home, son? When are you coming home? I don't know when, but we'll get together then, Dad. We'll get together then. There's a very popular uh, song country and western. Now the melodrama of this song with Chapin, which was written by his wife as almost an indirect protest, was this. That she pressed him with his busy life to spend more time at home. And he promised her at the end of a busy summer that he would. At the end of his tour he was to die in a fatal car accident. And it's a sad poignant Prophecy, almost, of life that is frenetic. Not necessarily bad, 
but just preoccupied with other things. But there's a greater lesson, and this is surely the application of the sermon, and it's this. Chapin's song is like David's life, or perhaps like ours, and it's this. Some things can be known, believed passionately, and preached, or in his case, sung successfully, but never lived out in his life. I wonder if you'd be willing to take that on board as, as, as a believer. Because that is clearly what happened with David. These things were not lived out in his life. And for the rest of the sermon, we're going to try to trace consequences. The application is obvious, isn't it? I think we can see that. So there's the principle that, that we reap what we sow... Even though sometimes we think we don't. Or we might even want to pass the buck on to other people. And life is short. And we would do well not to think in terms of corrective, but preventive living. So I want to give five comments, and that's all they're going to be, um, on this sad period in the life of David. The psalmist, the man after God's own heart. So turn with me, first of all, to Second uh, Samuel 12, 11 and 12. <clears throat> and what I would like us to do is to trace five steps of consequences... Downward steps, sadly, in David's misery. If you've seen the musical, Le Miserable, then this is where David's at. It's a period of immense misery and sorrow in his life. Now, I know one should perhaps preach a sermon on good consequences, and clearly there are. But, but this is where we're at tonight, and this is where we're staying. The first is this marital infidelity. Being unfaithful in marriage. And that's where it begins, strangely as it seems, and popular though it is in the media. Second Samuel 12, 11, this is what the Lord says, out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret. But I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. What David did in secret, and the whole point, of course, of Second Samuel 11 and 12 is... Uh, that he tried to cover it up, and as he tried to cover his tracks, a consequence of that, that Uriah, his loyal uh, soldier and officer, he orchestrated to have him killed so that everything would be all right. That which David did secretly 
Absalom did it openly to rub David's nose publicly in front of all Israel. So turn to chapter 16 and 21 and 22. And this is tricky because Ahithophel is a prophet. He's a prophet. He's, he, he's bringing the word of the Lord. And so he says in verse 21, Lie with your father's concubines whom he left to take care of, of the palace. Then all Israel will hear that you have made yourself an offense to your, uh, to, of your uh, offense to your father's nostrils and the hands of everyone will be strengthened. Our man is Solomon. David is finished. Such is human ficklety. He did it to shame his father and he did it to promote himself. And the end justifies the means. Secondly, one of David's sons rapes his half-sister. Look at um, 2 Samuel 13. Now, obviously, we, can we just, uh, we, it's, we, we're dealing with consequences, aren't we? That's the point. And it, driving home this obvious challenge. 2 Samuel 13, 1 and 2. In the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. Amnon became frustrated to the point of illness, almost obsessive, on account of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. But with the help of a friend, to orchestrate and to manipulate, Amnon set up a trap. He fakes an illness. And look in verse 11. But when she took... So, uh, you, you will see... The, well, look, verse 10. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food here into my bedroom, so that I may eat from your hand. Tamar took the bread she had prepared and brought it to her brother Amnon to his bedroom. But when she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, Come to bed with me, my sister. Don't, my brother, she said to him. Don't force me. Such a thing would not be done in, a, in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace? And what about you? You would be like one of those wicked fools in Israel. Please speak to the king. He will not keep me from being married to you. But he refused to listen to her. And since he was stronger than she, he raped her. And so on. But then consequences. Consequences. When then you get to verse 20 of uh, this chapter, her brother Absalom said to her, Has that Amnon, your brother, been with you? 
Be quiet now, my sister. He is your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. And Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. But something was going on in Absalom's heart. And when you get to verse 22, Absalom, well, verse 21, when King David heard of all this, he was furious, but did nothing. Absalom never said a word to Amnon. You can imagine this awful atmosphere, either good or bad. He hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. And so he waits his time. Further consequences. Third consequence of this spiral in David's life. Brother hates brother. Turn to, no, stay in this 13th chapter, 24, verse 24, sorry. Same chapter, verse 24. Two years later. So, you know, time's gone by. Time heals, doesn't it? Does it? Really? Well, it doesn't here. Absalom went to the king and said, Your servant has had shearers come. Will the king and his officials please join me? No, my son, the king replied. All of us should not go. We would only be a burden to you. Although Absalom urged him, he still refused to go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon come with us. The king asked him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom urged him, so he went with him. Amnon and the rest of the king's sons. Absalom ordered his men, Listen. When Amnon is in high spirits from drinking wine, and I say to you, strike Amnon down, then kill him. Don't be afraid. I have not given, have I not given you this order? Be strong and brave. And so, the downward spiraling events are beginning to take place. Just stay with with this for a moment because essentially we're thinking about David but all of this family thing the ripples are being felt wider and wider and greater and greater it is a classic passivity on the part of a parent here just simply to be angry and do nothing is a form of passivity that is sinful I don't know if you heard the interview on Radio 4 this morning from uh, a very courageous lady, the Reverend Julie Nicholson, whose daughter was killed in the London bombing by the Islamic terrorist. And she said publicly, I cannot, I will not forgive the person who has killed my daughter. And she has stood down from being a vicar. And she said, Sadiq Khan is unrepentant for what he did. How can I forgive someone who is unrepentant? Oh, she's got a point, hasn't she? But the interviewer pressed her and said, how does it leave you? And she said, it leaves me angry. And she said, what I am trying to do is to harness my anger so that it doesn't eat me up. Now, David is angry, but he's not doing anything with it. It is a form of passivity that will create great
greater consequences. Fourthly, and just coming to a final uh, conclusion on these steps, Absalom's conspiracy against his father. Absalom now is convinced that he can do a better job than his father. He may well have a point. But look at the way he goes about it. So when you come to 2 Samuel 15, verses 1 to 6, here it is. This is his conspiracy. He wants to be king. In the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him to impress people. He would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. The city gate was the place where judgment and issues were settled, as in our law courts and so on. Whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, What town are you from? He would answer, Your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, Look, your claims are valid and proper. He hasn't heard them yet. This is political posturing, isn't it? And we may well, I don't want to be cynical about it, but, you know, um, there it is. But there is no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, if only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or a case could come to me and I would see that he receives justice. Also, whenever anyone approached him, to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him and kiss him. Now, you wouldn't need to be too cynical to think that here Absalom's got ulterior motive. Absalom behaved in this way towards all Israel who came to the king asking for justice. And so, by stealth, he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. This is a conspiracy, not overnight. This is not a coup d'etat just in 24 hours. And he wants to undermine his father. Character assassinate him first, then physically assassinate him. So when you get to verse 14, you see, Then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, Come, we must flee or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately, or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin upon us and put the city to the sword. It was ready. The conspiracy is going to take place. So through deception, he won the hearts of the people. Through innuendo, being disingenuous, the sword will never leave your house is the big consequence. This is the detail of it. And lastly, Joab murders Absalom. Let's turn to chapter 18 as we try to round this off. 18 and verse uh, 32. The king asked the Cushite. This is David asking the Cushite, Is the young man Absalom safe? After everything that Absalom had done to his father, David loved him deeply. The Cushite replied, 
May the enemies of my Lord the King and all who rise up to harm you be like that young man. In other words, your son is dead. The king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and wept. As he went, he said, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom. And there's the word, if only. We'd write that well as we think of consequences. We've come full circle. Don't we say it? If only I had died instead of you. Or if only I had taken the initiative to prevent rather than wait to correct. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. It's a haunting cry, isn't it? Despite all that has happened, David loved Absalom. And now David is and will be a broken man. And the harvest of his sin is more than he can bear. Not his sin. The harvest. Reaping what you sow. And yet, that is not so. It is. But there are other things that come to bear. Sometimes God's providence, you know, to provide hence, so that in a way God's ahead of the game. And he can say, yes, you are messed up big time. Really. And it's one thing to be messed up and nobody knows. It's another when everybody knows. That is, that is something. Here he is a broken man. David, well respected in the community. A pillar in the community and a contradiction at home. His home is a mess. His home is a mess. And the application for us, if it isn't obvious already, that if it might be that you and I from time to time have taken God's grace for granted and presumed rather than repented. Or, if you like, that though we are Christians, we like to flirt a bit. Who's going to know? And, and what harm is there? Or that we might assume, after all, God's grace will pick me up even though I might fall. And it covers all, doesn't it? Does it? Then what we need is a wake-up call. Indeed, it might be that you are harvesting now, unknown to others, consequences. Is that the end of it? No, it isn't. Yes, you must come back to God. You must. There's no other way. Be convinced of that. Because as we saw, and as, if, as we will see again, that out of these awful times, God was able to deal with David. Broken lives, broken relationships. Psalm 51, Psalm 32, 
And many of, of the other psalms, it isn't that he's such a clever poet, he thinks, I think I'll sit down and write a psalm. It's out of the depth of his experience and of God's forgiveness and God's grace. That's why they resonate with us. And that's why they are so real. And so he prays then that even through consequences, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgression. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. This is very real now, isn't it? I know my transgressions. You could almost say that I know my consequences. They are always before me. So he goes on to pray, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. From those five steps you could pray that. And you might look back over your life at given times you say, you know, even those terrible consequences, God didn't abandon me. And that he was with me. And he brought me through that. And love that is so amazing. Now, I, I would gladly give my life, my breath, my all to him. Because I'm not worthy of it. And he prays this, do not take your spirit from me, restore to me the joy which he'd lost a long time ago, the joy of your salvation. And it is at that point, it says, then, even if I can't regain full respect, I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Because people will say, if you can do that for him, then you can do it for anyone. Like father, like Absalom. Consequences and forgiveness. And whatever the consequences you face, just think finally now that God can turn that round, even that, and use it for good. You remember that marvelous encounter with Joseph in Egypt. His sons had been cruel and jealous. Joseph had been proud, that's true. And he said, you intended to harm me. And didn't they? You know the life of Joseph. But God meant it for good. Consequences. And even through that, even through that, God can work and bring blessing. And finally the psalm says... O oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. It's a long way back, isn't it? But it's God's way. It's God's way. I'm going to be like you, Dad. I'm going to be like you. You say to your children, really? Then please follow me in my better moments. And where I fail, Follow him who will never fail, ever. 